Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is definitely no exception. I am thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to be talking to Dr. Jill Carnahan. She's a treasure, you know, a thought leader in functional medicine. And um, we will be covering uh, just a whole bunch of information I think you're going to find will influence your practice. Let me give you her background. Dr. Carnahan completed a residency at the University of Illinois program in family medicine at Methodist Medical Center. In 2000, 2006, she was voted by faculty to receive the Resident Teacher of the Year Award and elected to Central Illinois 40 Leaders Under 40. I'm not surprised. She received her medical degree from Loyola University Strick School of Medicine in Chicago and her Bachelor's of Science in Bioengineering at University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. She's board, duly board certified in both family medicine and integrative holistic medicine. Uh, she was one of the first group to receive her uh, functional medicine certification through IFM. Uh, and in fact, we're gonna be talking today about a really lovely presentation uh, she gave to the, uh, this year, the 2018 Annual International Conference um, in Florida. So we'll be hopping into that in a second. But anyway, following her residency, Dr. Carnahan's vision for health and healing resulted in the creation of Methodist Center for Integrative Medicine in Peoria, Illinois, and she was the medical director there for four years. Uh, she founded Flatiron Functional Medicine Center in Boulder, Colorado in 2010, and uh, she has, it's just been a really great extremely successful uh, clinic ever since and I hear good things coming out uh, coming out of Flatiron all the time. Jill, welcome to uh, New Frontiers. Thank you, Kara. I love talking to you because we love to dig into the science and it's always just a joy to find such a kindred spirit. So I'm excited yeah. about our topic today. Yeah, absolutely. And you've been really kind of an inspiration for me how you've you know, launched your practice. I mean, not only are you a good, you go into the rabbit hole, I think as much as I do with regard to really looking at and metabolizing the science and then applying it in practice, but you also have, you know, built this wonderfully successful functional medicine clinic. And I want to circle back and pick your brain on that a little bit at the end. I want to devote, you know, just a minute or two, because a lot of people listening to New Frontiers are clinicians transitioning into functional medicine. And it's that deer in the headlights moment, and you've done it. You've been there for years, and you've built this lovely, successful thing. So let's make sure we circle back. I would love that. You got it. Um, Okay, so we're going to talk about all things endotoxemia and what to do about it. It's been uh, something that those of us in the functional medicine space have been uh, talking about for years. But, you know, give me the background. What is endotoxemia? So you ask a great question. What is endotoxemia? Um, what we find is this is at the root cause of so many chronic conditions from um, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, depression, anxiety, even chronic pain and autoimmune disease. So at, as we like to think of with functional medicine, we're going to the root cause. Well, this is the root cause of so many things that we see every day in clinical practice. What we see is basically 
many, many of our patients, um, in fact, I don't know about you, but at this point, I usually just assume that my patients have leaky gut or intestinal hyperpermeability. Mm -hmm. And when these tight junctions uh, are uh, disrupted from environmental toxin or infection, and the zonulin is increased, there can be a crossover of the bacterial polysaccharides, which is called LPS, lipopolysaccharide, um, from the intestinal lumen into the bloodstream. And when it gets in the bloodstream, the body sees it as a bad guy, as an antigen. And it's a potent, probably one of the most potent immune stimulators that we know of. So this stimulates the immune system, causes chronic infl inflammation, chronic infection, or, um, just all these inflammatory cytokine processes because it's not supposed to be in the bloodstream. Um, and that's really at the core what endotoxemia is, is this LPS bacterial coating um, crossing over, triggering an immune response in the bloodstream. And leaky gut is at the is 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 at the is the the V's the fundamental driver of this translocated LPS. Exactly. That's amazing. Exactly. You have to have some sort of permeability, but obviously we have so many people with a permeable membrane, and these are not like bad, horrible pathogens like Giardia or Cryptosporidia. These are coatings of some of our normal residents in the gut. So what happens is pretty much anybody with significant um, intestinal permeability can have some degree of endotoxemia. So talk to me about, you know, how you're addressing this clinically. Um, you must be thinking, I mean, you're, you're going to be addressing intestinal permeability and treating that, but you're also going to be thinking about diet, lifestyle modification, um, and removing the mediators of intestinal permeability. So how do you, now, all your patients, you are assuming, have some degree of endotoxemia because everybody's coming to you with leaky gut. And you did just give me a list of conditions, and, I'm, and it goes on from there. But So what are you thinking about in terms of addressing it? Yeah, so again, there are tests out there that, that you can do. Um, Cyrex Array 2, there's, a, there's the old um, uh, mannitol lactulose test. Honestly, I do not even test any longer. I do sometimes yeah. do food sensitivities, and I see tons of antigens and autoimmunity. I just assume it's there. Yes. So I would say, the type, right? <laughs> the types of patients we see, we can just assume that it's yes. actually part of the problem. Yes. Um, I think it's partially because of... Um, I always think of nowadays with my complex patients, it's all about infection and toxin and which piece is bigger. It's like the seesaw. And so we know infections like viruses and bacterial pathogens and SIBO and SIFO and parasites um, can all increase the intestinal permeability. So can uh, food antigens like gluten mm -hmm. and other inflammatory things in the diet. And then things like environmental toxic exposure. So uh, chemicals, pesticides um, can cause this and also mold can cause this. So there's so many environmental triggers like infections and toxins yes. that our patients are exposed to. And then yes. they are increasing the permeability. Um, and then it's funny because, you know, we're all doing these paleo keto diets. I'm a huge fan. I use these in clinical practice all the time, but there is clear evidence that uh, fats in the diet, especially coconut and saturated fats, increase endotoxemia. So I think there's a subset of population where, say we have someone with a previous heart attack, we may not want to put them on high saturated fat because we're going to increase that risk of endotoxemia. That's a pretty profound statement. <laughs> um, I use I use a high fat ketogenic diet in practice too. Yes, I think that that's I think it, I think I think it's incredibly interesting and I think it's worth actually drilling down. I think we need to. I, I I'm interested in seeing data and especially human data where 
where it's actually measured, you know, baseline and, and follow up and um, yeah, there was a study in uh, 2013 that was just actually um, republished in um, the fall of, I think, 2017, where it actually showed the types of dietary fats, fats and the um, LPS serum levels. And what it showed was coconut showed increased, olive oil was neutral, uh, yes. saline was the, you know, neutral, and then cotton, fish or fish oil, EPA, DHA was all reduction. So, and I, this blows my mind because I'm like you, I really use and prescribe ketogenic and paleo diets in my practice frequently. Um, so I use these all the time. And just to be clear, I'm, I am still a fan of all those. Yes. But I think you have to understand the process when you are giving patients high saturated fat because there is a certain subset, um, a diabetic obese um, person who's had a heart attack that probably wouldn't do great until you heal their gut. Well, let me actually, let me give you my thought on this. I, I so I, I think that you're, I think you're right. And so, and a piece of it has to do with the milieu that you're introducing it into. And, and this is an argument for treating gut first without question, mm -hmm. but I'm wondering in the study, they introduced it with a diet that's rich in carbohydrates. So my question, and what I'd really like to see answered is if you introduce these fats without, you know, the carbohydrate macronutrient accompanying them, would they behave differently? You know, would the cascade of hormones being released? Because if it's a, you know, if it's a carbohydrate meal, obviously insulin's going to be there. Whereas if you introduce high fats in a keto meal, insulin is not going to be introduced. Would that have a different outcome? So that's one of the questions I'm sitting with. But it would argue for so it would argue for a potential anti-inflammatory effect in the keto diet, but it might not. Like I could be, I could be wrong here, but it, it is, it's a question that I have because, you know, and, and it's an argument for potentially, you know, managing how we introduce macromolecules or food combining. You know, you don't want to eat potentially a high fat saturated meal or in, use coconut oil or medium chain triglycerides, which are extremely popular, you know, when you're having a sandwich <laughs> or an ice cream. Does that make sense to you? Yes. I, I completely think there's a piece of that too. And I'll just tell you a story because it kind of um, shows the significance. So I had a patient who said, you know, here's what happened. What in the world do you think happened? And she said, okay, I can eat eggs and I eat coconut oil all the time. They never had trouble. But the other day I cooked an egg in coconut oil and I had the most severe allergic reaction of my life. And I had to think about that. And I thought, okay, she's got a little bit of sensitivity, maybe even IgE to egg. She didn't know it. It was maybe small quantities. She mm -hmm. threw that in the coconut oil and it drove it right transmembrane, just like endotoxemia, that antigen. And I really believe it was because the, the driver, the coconut oil really does increase endotoxemia. And it blows my mind, but that was such a clear example that, um, I don't know for sure, but that's my theory on what happened. Yeah, right, right. Which would argue against my idea that the introduction of sugar um, drives the endotoxemic effect of these fatty acids, of some of the fatty acids, because as you pointed out, right, right. olive, you know, fish, um, those oils were actually either protective or reduced. So yeah. I think there's more to know, but yeah, go ahead. I do. And I agree with you. It's like, oh, I love the high fat diets. I, I think they're incredible for patients for all different types of various conditions, especially autoimmunity. 
But then I'm like, okay, we just have to be a little cautious because there yes. may be more than we really understand. Yes. I mean, I, I still prescribe them. So like, yes. and I do it myself, but I think that there's more understanding to be had because it fascinates me. Like, why would that be the case? And it yes. is in the research. Yes. So I think your thought around healing a gut, you know, starting with yes. the gut is, is, you know, well taken by me. I think that's an important idea. Well, it's just like, let me throw out one more and then we can kind of back up and move on. But this is such an important topic. You know, the other yeah. piece is that in a, in a very oxidative environment, i.e. in somebody who's got, you know, uncontrolled type 2 diabetes, you want to be mindful about introducing omega-3 fatty acids immediately because they're polyunsaturated and, and, and you can increase oxidative stress with those polyunsaturated molecules. Or you want to introduce the fish oil because it's so remarkably helpful with a good antioxidant as well. So I, I, I hear what you're saying, Joel, and, I, and you make really interesting and important points. And I think it's I think it's particularly important at this time that we push this conversation forward while um, we're also actively prescribing higher fat diets and many of us are leaning on medium chain triglycerides as well. You know, are we introducing mm -hmm. them into a safe environment? Yeah, completely agree. And again, I use it too. So it's just a query that we need to, you and I like to ask yep. these questions. Yep. So here it is. <laughs> yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, all right. So what are you doing? You've talked about toxins and I know you, and you put, and you put the standard American diet in the toxin strongly into the toxin column. <laughs> yeah. And then you've talked about inf yeah. um, infection, any comments around um, lifestyle modification. And then I want to talk about, you know, some of the nutraceutical interventions that you might be doing for this. You got it. So there's definitely pesticide chemicals, things like that. So glyphosate in our diet and in our food supply and even um, chemicals and plastics and things. And so I think the first place we start is always diet. And so what I do to, to help leaky gut with diet is, first of all, check for food sensitivities. These would be the IgGs that are very highly elevated because those are going to also increase inflammation. And you take those foods out. We, for 15 years now, have both prescribed elimination diets. And I use that as a core because those foods, especially gluten, are going to be a big trigger as well. So you decrease the antigenic load. Um, so that's number one. And then number two is organic is absolutely essential nowadays. <clears throat> and many of our patients can't afford all organic. So at least the dirty dozen from Environmental Working Group, you can avoid those if, if possible at all costs yes. or eat organic. And then um, non-GMO is big because glyphosate has a huge effect on the microbiome. Um, in fact, the studies said, oh, these you know, Monsanto said they don't hurt human cells, all is good, but the problem is they dramatically alter the microbiome. Um, it's been shown to preferentially kill lactobacillus and allow clostridia to overgrow, and we all know that's a big problem. Yeah. So um, getting rid of the glyphosate by eating non-GMO foods is also really critical. So just a clean whole food diet, um, lots of fruits and vegetables, leafy greens, um, nuts and seeds. I think kind of a Mediterranean with a little bit lower carb is, is kind of where I lean for the healing the leaky gut and then taking out the gluten, the dairy, the sugar, and the other foods that are sensitive. Perfect. That's perfect. By the way, folks, um, in the show notes, I'll list the uh, dietary fats and endotoxemia paper that Dr. Carnahan just referenced. And, and Jill, if you can send me that last that would be great. And we'll just make sure those are posted in the show notes so that you can access um, 
those studies. Now, what about what about nutraceuticals? Are you thinking about those with regard to addressing endotoxemia and leaky gut? Yes, 100%. So there's so many different ways where this, um, like if we can neutralize the lipopolysaccharide, that's like at the core source. That's one yes. way we can do this. If we can increase mucin production at the cellular level and actually increase the protective coating, that's another. If we can increase tight junction expression, decrease the actual permeability, that's another. Um, and then just, just whole, really healing the gut. So I think about, about it in several ways. Um, the old school glutamine is still okay. Um, I feel like the power isn't there as, uh, as much as some of the newer things we can do. The new kid on the block that I love is serum-derived bovine immune globulins. Now, these are where you actually neutralize the LPS. These are, these are passive immune globulins that go around and grab those particles of LPS and actually prevent it from transferring over into the immune system. That's wonderful. Actually, there's, you know, there's a lot of good data out on um, SBI or serum-derived bovine immunoglobulin. Um, so, how, you know, just talk to me about some of it. So some of the research behind, um, there's, first of all, they've been generally recognized as safe for uh, a decade, since at least 2008. There's over 43 human studies and six randomized placebo-controlled trials. So there's lots of evidence that this is not only safe, um, but effective. Um, the one that I use, which is an over-the-counter serum-derived bovine immune globulin, is dairy-free, mm. sugar-free, non-GMO, which, as we just talked about, is a pretty critical uh, thing. There is a prescription uh, grade one on the market that has GMO corn dextrose. And so, obviously, for reasons we just discussed, I prefer yes. not to use it. Um, it's from USDA-certified clean medical-grade cattle. And it's isolated from the colostrum of the cattle. So it's actually, it's in my mind, it's similar to, I think it's way better than our old products like colostrum, but it has the same idea of this passive immunity. That we're why, getting. why do you think it's better than, than colostrum? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, you got it. So I have about 50% of my patients that react to egg and dairy and all the yes. previous products in the market had egg or dairy and they had reactions to them. This one I still, I don't think I've had one patient have a reaction to it, which is nice. Oh, that is. That's great. Okay, so keep going with the background on it. Yeah, so there's been, I mean, this has been used and, and just well studied, so it's very safe. Um, I use it in, in as young as two years old, um, so very, very safe product. It's a powdered form, so you can mix it with water or some other liquid. You could put it in a smoothie. I think it tends to work better between meals or before a meal. Um, okay. But in cases of, you know, compliance, sometimes you can even mix it with food or smoothie. Um, it, it gives passive immunity. So it, again, it actually has really good research on binding some of these uh, bacteria coatings. Um, I think it shows um, lipopolysaccharide, C. diff, toxin A and B, um, some of the different particles of the microbial components. It actually shows studies on binding H. pylori, Listeria, and mycoplasma. And even there's studies on binding viruses and viral analogs. So this is a pretty cool um, way to give passive immunity. And some of the things that I think about, like obviously we talked about endotoxemia in most of our patients, mm -hmm. but one of the things that's a big um, thing for me is seeing a low, um, a low uh, fecal IgA, like a secretory yes. IgA that's low. You see those a lot too. Mm -hmm. And basically that, that tells me the mucosal immune system is just trashed. I love this product for low SIGA because I think about um, giving them a passive immune system to kind of help with getting rid of the pathogens and the overgrowths and all those things. You know, 
it's also apparently buys binds zymazan pretty effectively so would you you'd think about this in yeah. would you think i mean do you think about it in in your cfo or do you think about it in your yeast patients and do you use it in SIBO out of curiosity i do 100 percent in both of those cases because what happens we know yeast is opportunistic so i always tell patients you know what your root cause is a weakened immune system you don't get a, a, a huge overgrowth of yeast unless you have a weakened system and so because of that, um, I understand that anytime we can support, like I love going to the root cause and just throwing antibiotics or antifungals at them, maybe temporarily a good idea. But mm -hmm. my job is like, what's really causing this? And so many times is their weakened immune system, their low SIGA. And this in my mind is about as close as you can get to IVIG. Like it's a, it's a product that will actually aid their immune system in fighting pathogens. That's amazing. So in somebody who's got a very active autoimmune process going on where you might consider IVIG, you're thinking about you're actually going to use SBI at this point, oral SBI. I do. And you know, the approval for insurance and the expense, I mean, that can be eight or $10,000 a pop and yeah. they get it every two to three weeks. So it's incredibly expensive. Insurance may or may not cover it. But if I have either a low serum SIGA, which is actually, um, you know, a secretory IGA deficiency syndrome mm -hmm. or a um, fecal SIGA low, both of those conditions, I'm thinking there's their mucosal immunities weakened. What can I do? That's easy, affordable. And mm -hmm. this is the first thing I do every time. That's awesome. <laughs> it's really a useful pearl. How are you dosing it? Yeah, so um, the studies have all used five grams twice a day, which is two scoops twice a day of the over-the-counter product. Mm -hmm. um, and some patients who are just maintenance, I'll do one scoop twice a day. But somewhere between one and two scoops twice a day, pretty simple dosing too. Wow. Okay, so you're sticking with that two scoops in, your, in, in, in the patients with higher need? You're not going higher yeah. than that? Um, you know, some situations where I've had like an active Crohn's or colitis, I've used um, up to eight scoops. And especially for acute diarrhea where nothing else works, it tends to work really nicely at the higher doses. Um, so I'll use it in those cases at higher doses up to four to eight scoops a day. Um, but I haven't in general gone a lot higher um, for the average patient. What's the duration? Are you, what duration are you using it in your chronic folks? I would say minimum of six months. Um, and I have to tell you another story. Uh, okay. so this had just happened last week. So I had a patient who I saw two, three months ago, and she actually fit the criteria for combined variable immune deficiency, where she had low serum total IgG, and then she had some other markers that just showed she was she was having chronic sinus infections and respiratory issues. And so I referred her to my local immunologist who I work with, and I said, you know what, she's a candidate for IVIG. She's got combined variable immune deficiency. So he saw her, did a bunch of labs and, and workup, and the time between me seeing her and getting the plan in place and, and her seeing the immunologist was about four weeks. And what I prescribed was a mycelized mushroom and I prescribed SBI Protect. So two things that would increase immunity and hopefully increase. So I don't know which one helped, but here's what happened. She went back to her fellow visit the immunologist and he said, I don't know what you did, but your immune globulins are totally normal and you no longer have an immune deficiency. Wow. And I was blown away. Because she on her first visit said, well, I'm seeing Dr. Jill and she gave me some oral stuff and he immediately was like, oral stuff doesn't work. You know, <laughs> like she yeah. just blew her off and then she comes back and he's like blown away. He's like, I don't know what you did. And, and one of the two interventions was SBI, it was just SBI, serum derived bovine immune globulins and it was just profound of how um, impactful it was. That's incredible. And how was she clinically? Much, much better. Like she well, had her 
Yeah, go ahead. Well, she, of course, she had like chronic respiratory things, and I treated locally with a nasal spray. Um, but when we repeated the labs, the immune globulins were normal. That's I've never incredible. seen them. That's incredible. So it really was powerful. That's really, really exciting. Let me ask you in, gen in general. So, so for this patient, I'm assuming you were using the chronic protocol, which is one scoop twice a day? Um, I, I was two scoops twice a day for her. Two scoops twice a day. Okay. Really impressive. Thanks for that, Dr. Carnahan. Now, what about other labs? So you talked about in the beginning that you might do, you know, you might look at food sensitivities, you know, the Cyrex Array 2 you used to use, but you assume everybody has leaky gut, and I'm with you on that. I think any of our chronic patients, we can, we can really assume that, especially if they've got, you know, food reactions and they've been on a standard American diet to any extent. What about inflammatory markers? Are there any, oh, well, you're looking at IgA, you're looking at secretory IgA, or you're measuring serum IgA. Um, are you looking at CRP or SED rate or, you know, oxidant stress markers or is any of those that you're seeing favorable change with when you use SBI? So when I think about like leaky gut and if I'm just doing serum labs, because like we said, typically I don't do a specific leaky gut um, panel. Um, mm -hmm. What I'm doing, I do total um, IgG and I do subtype, uh, subtypes of IgG and then I'll do IgM, IgA, IgE. So I'll do all the immune globulin levels. Uh -huh. um, I do MSH frequently because the really low MSH is classically associated with decreasing or increased intestinal permeability. Okay. So, and that's melanocyte stimulating hormone, folks. Correct. correct. And there's obviously connections to all kinds of things, but definitely mold exposure can be a cause of low MSH. And almost always, I have some studies on mycotoxins in children in Africa, and there was a clear association with massive increase in intestinal permeability, and it was related to the low MSH. Um, so, and they did in those studies, they used vitamin A, vitamin D, zinc, zinc carnosine. Um, they didn't have anything like serum-derived bovine immunoglobulins, or I think that would have helped, but they did those things for that permeability and improved a little bit. So I'll check the, um, the MSH and then um, I'll check kind of infectious burden. So I'll often check viral titers in mycoplasma, chlamydia, check for tick-borne stuff. So just checking those kinds of things. Um, and I'll usually do a urine screen for both uh, toxic exposures and also mold. So I'm looking at both toxin and infection and triggers in the more complex patients. Okay, good. All right, a comprehensive workout. Just out of curiosity, what, uh, what are you doing for your tick-borne I know that people are going to have questions. Actually, they're going to want to know your whole protocol <laughs> and all the labs that you're doing. But just we can simplify it and think about tick-borne. Are you, you what 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 lab are you using or labs? Um, I still love Igenix. It's kind of mm -hmm. one of the old, you know old really great ones. Um, I yes. also use DNA Connections, which is a urine PCR for um, tick-borne illnesses and in co-infections. Um, and there's a couple. There's Armin Labs from Germany and some difficult okay. cases and Galaxy for Bartonella. Okay, perfect. Thanks for that. Um, all right. We, do you, and, and, and clearly, just as judging by the, the patient you just presented, you're seeing your, your follow-up testing is coming back improved, but I suppose where the rubber meets the road is clinically, you're just seeing really nice outcome. Yes. Yeah, I see people. Um, so the only, normally, um, the only thing, I guess this would be the same, like if you use a binder, this is not a binder, uh, but it does bind you know, uh, toxins in a passive immunity way. And I think the one risk is someone with severe constipation. The people with really bad constipation are the only class that I find have to be a little more cautious and like starting slowly and working up. So if you okay. have someone with severe, I would 
treat the constipation first and then start slowly like maybe one scoop, one half scoop and work up to two or three or four scoops a day on the patient with severe constipation. But again, in my mind, there's a root cause. So you actually fix the constipation first and then there's no problem because it's not contraindicated. It's just that you want to be cautious. With looser stools, patients love it because they tend to be a little bit more regular. Um, and labs, yeah, the follow-up, it's always depending on the root cause. So if there really is a tick-borne infection or a toxic exposure, um, SBI will help them, but it won't solve the root cause. So I still go back to whatever the root is causing that issue. Um, but it's an amazing Band-Aid in the meantime that really, really helps the patients clinically. Right, right. Well, and it's, yeah, right. It's just repairing some of the damage as we've talked about. And however, you're still concurrently doing a full functional approach. Yes. That's really, that's really nice. And so would you, I, I mean, I'm assuming that this is, well, this is clearly going to be your first go-to before you refer to IVIG, but you really think that this might supplant it? Well, I, not really, because the people who truly have a combined variable immune deficiency, they're not going to um, resolve. I mean, that was so unique, that case I saw. I don't know if there was something else driving it. But mm -hmm. here's the thing, I don't have this all figured out, but what I do see is there's a degree of patients with extreme and uh, basically protein wasting enteropathy. This is a diagnosis, which means they're basically wasting protein, losing it through the permeable gut. And so if you're losing your immune globulins and proteins through the permeability of the gut and wasting them, um, giving back some immune globulins and actually healing that leaky gut may improve the immune globulin level. And yes. I find my subsets of IVIG requiring patients definitely usually have an infectious or toxic burden in the lungs or the gut that's driving that. There's a subset that are genetic and then those you probably aren't going to change. But I think it's interesting because I think in small subset, it actually could be either an adjuvant or a cure for those. Actually, I hate to say the word cure, but at least improvement. in Yes. That's really impressive. Well, and even in the people with genetic, they're still going to have environmental influences that may actually be greater than the genetic influence. Yeah. And, you know, I want to just mention some things that your um, listeners may not think of, the other things that might be helpful. Of course, like Crohn's or colitis, you're going to have a permeability. So I would definitely use this product in patients with Crohn's or colitis. We mentioned autoimmunity. So almost any autoimmune case, there's going to be um, a permeable gut. Um, Lyme and mold, of course, are big toxic infectious burdens. Um, autistic children, this is yes. great because they often have really tough guts. And yes. the two you may not think of that we probably don't see super often is post-chemotherapy and HIV. Yes, right. Those are two really great situations where you can use this too. That's perfect. Um, well, listen, I think that, you know, we're, we're, I just want to pick your brain as I've been doing, but on this topic. Well, actually, let me ask you one more question. I'm going to get your thinking just re with regard to being a thought leader in our space and, 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 and just talk to you a little bit about, you know, what you would, how you would advise clinicians coming into the field. But you're also a mast cell expert. And I think that you use SBI in your um, allergic slash mast cell activation folks. Any, any comments on there or any little case vignettes you can offer? I do, and that would kind of go back to the previous products in the market always cause sensitivity. Like no one could take them because the prescription brand had dextrose, which if you have SIBO or SIFO, yes. it's going to be miserable if you take a product with sugar in it. It's just like yes. crazy to me. And not only that, but you're getting a corn source that's not non-GMO. It's GMO corn. So there's some big issues, red flags for me. And then the previous products that, are, that were out there that had either dairy or egg and 
really most of my patients with the massless stuff, those are massive triggers. So they could never take this product. Now they can. So I do like it for that reason. Yes, that is, that's really terrific. Um, okay. So talk to me about, you know, what you, what the starting points for new functional medicine clinicians coming into the field and, you know, hanging out their own shingle and finding their community. What are some of the things that you did that you're continuing to do? Yeah, great question. Um, because it's funny you think back and we all start somewhere. And I know yes. I started, I really didn't know anything of what I was doing. But yeah. a couple of things I feel guided me. First of all, I was passionate, passionate about functional medicine. I was so like there was nothing else I could have done. And I think most of the practitioners that are starting into it feel that virus where they get, you know, infected <laughs> and they can't not talk about it or not study about it. I'm a lifelong learner like you. So I'm constantly reading, studying, and, and trying to know the cutting edge of what's out there. Um, but as far as what I did, I started just talking to, you know, community groups. I went to the local Lifetime Fitness and gave lectures um, and really just met other practitioners. And I'm of the mindset, I'm sure you're the same, that there's more than enough business to go around. So I could have a doc that literally opens his clinic two doors down from me and I'll invite him up for coffee and say, how can I help you? Like really helping and loving other practitioners is so key because we all need each other and it's not a competitive world. There's just so much business to go around. So getting to know people that like, whether it's um, acupuncture, massage therapy, other therapies, or even other doctors. Um, and then really trying to help them um, in any way that you can or, um, or even partner with them and start small. Um, I remember coming from, a, I came from a big medical center in Peoria, Illinois, where I was medical director. I had a multi-million dollar clinic with seven exam rooms, a procedure rooms, two RNs. I mean, I had so much overhead. It was crazy. Mm. Loved it. It was beautiful. But when I started in Colorado, I started shared space with Bob Roundtree. And we right. started one shared exam room with one person answering the phone, like so simple. Yes. But it helped me because I had no debt. I started very small. I grew into my practice. And all the way, I just I slowly, slowly got more space, got more. And so starting with low overhead is really important because if you get in over your head, then you become a slave to your clinic and then you're back in the same position where you left. Yes. <laughs> so really starting low and small and then getting the word out. And you need an online presence nowadays. I hate social media, but I, I need it. And I use it frequently because that's the way to reach and make an impact. So whether you do it yourself, like I did for eight years, um, writing content and getting that out there, but you need a good web presence, you need a good social media team or yourself in the beginning, and that's really going to drive people to you um, as they search online. And nowadays, that's the biggest source of referrals. Would you say that that is what um, kind of transformed your practice from the from the simple setting that you started out in to where you are now, where I believe you're you know, you're booked out for a year or so. We have a five-year waiting list and we're not taking new patients. So it's pretty crazy. It's huge. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So what was your question about how it came from starting? Yeah. What were, so what was the biggest influence in getting, basically shutting your practice down because you're so booked out? What um, would you say the piece was that really uh, pushed that forward? So eight years ago, I decided, okay, I need to kind of figure out who I am. And, and I actually branded Dr. Jill, your functional medicine expert. It's a registered trademark. Mm -hmm. And I really was like, okay, but what do I want to do? I wanted to be expert. And so I named myself the expert. I stood up to learning and studying so that I could be the expert. 
but I actually branded that and became what I wanted to be and it manifested. It was kind of profound to me of how that happened. I really do feel like I am an expert now, but at the time I branded myself, I wasn't. And I just grew into that. And how I grew into it was I backed it up by writing um, articles. I, I wrote an article every month. Um, and now I have some help, but for the longest time I wrote everything myself and I just put out what I thought was really good content on stuff that I was interested in. And so that started helping the reputation because people would search for mast cell disorders and they would find my article or mold illness and they would find my article. So that driving the writing and the content is what's going to drive your presence and the online presence is really going to drive your, um, your people who want to see you in the clinic. Mm -hmm. You've done a really lovely job. I just want to underscore the fact that you said you wrote about what you love and that's essential. Actually, you identified what you love. So a few things you said, one, you created yourself as an expert and now you've grown into that fully, which you absolutely have. And you, and you defined what you were going to be expert in and what you had the most energy around. And then you created the vision and it happened. Incidentally, this idea of there being abundance and you know no competition you you've supported me actually i've picked your brain on multiple occasions regarding your fabulous clinical business model and um you know, I know we've co-supported well, each I other, but you supported me too. I'm saying you've been thinking me too. Well, it's a really lovely relationship, and I'm and I am of the same mind. You know that abundance abundance happens, and and yes. if we allow it to happen, if we get out of the way of the abundance happening. Um, yes. yes. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Carnahan. You're just a real treasure, and. Uh, you know, without question, you'll, you've, you've influenced the folks listening and I know people are excited about SBI. Thank you for everything you've, you've uh, presented You're here today. You're welcome. It was fun. <laughs> <Thank> you <so laughs> much. Great.